It's the Growing for Market podcast. So after eight or nine seasons of working with someone, you develop patterns and ideas about how your farm works. And now I'm doing that with a new person. And so we, in order to do that well, we decided this year to scale the farm back a little bit from where we had been growing at our sort of where we were is about three acres of vegetables pretty intensively in production. And this year, I think it's closer to like an acre and a half. But what's amazing is that we have cut back like the area that we're planting, but we've hardly cut back the revenue that's coming in at all. It's so interesting to see how that flip has happened because we're just... Hello, and welcome to the Growing for Market podcast, where we talk about all things market farming related. I'm Katie Kula, your host and a writer for Growing for Market magazine, for 32 years, the magazine for vegetable and flower farmers. If you're enjoying the podcast, just wait till you see the magazine. Go to growingformarket.com for more. Also, if you could give us a follow and a rating, it really helps other like-minded people find the podcast. Hello, everyone. Today, I am speaking with Eli Wheat, owner and operator of Skyroot Farm on Whidbey Island in Washington State. Skyroot is a certified organic 20-acre farm with two to three acres in intensive vegetable production. Eli co-manages the farm with business partner Max Hainel. They practice regenerative agriculture using a no-till approach to vegetable production. They maintain a herd of meat goats, raise chickens for eggs and sometimes meat, and have a gaggle of ducks. Whidbey Island is just a ferry ride and a short drive away from Seattle. And in addition to working on the farm, Eli is an assistant teaching professor at the Program on the Environment at the University of Washington. Eli is also a core faculty member of the Food Systems Nutrition and Health Program. He is passionate about regenerative food production systems and teaches many courses in food production and sustainability. Eli, thanks for joining me today. I'm super excited to learn more about Skyroot Farm and also to hear about the intersection between your farm practices and your teaching and academic work. It's, it's very interesting to me. Oh, wow, Katie. It's such a joy to join you. Thanks so much for the invitation to be here. Great. So let's start at the beginning, shall we? I'm very curious, which came first, being a farmer or your academic career, which seems pretty, <laughs> which seems pretty topically related. I'm like, environmental studies, farming, I mean... They seem very related, but I'm curious which came first. That's such a great question. I feel like I'm very, very squarely an educator first. I started my job as a teacher at a high school and I got this great job actually in Eugene, which is why I smiled earlier. Yeah, not too far from us. Yeah. To learn about the Willamette, connections with the Willamette Valley. Yeah. So I was in Eugene and I showed up at this high school and I was ready for my first day of teaching. And my principal was like, oh, I'm so glad you, you're joining us. And by the way, one of the jobs of the high school teacher is to manage this two acre school farm. Well, whoa, like a two acre school farm is not actually a small job and a side no. project for a science teacher. <laughs> And it actually was this wonderful opportunity for me to just begin practicing agriculture and learning more about growing food here on the West Coast. Because I had grown up in upstate New York in a, far, in a rural farming community where I, like everybody else in, you know, I think, rural America, I got the message that was like, 
dude, Eli, if you can do anything else with your life other than become a farmer, you should do that thing. The message that I got was like, like only people who don't have options stay here and farm, which is a really sad message that so many, I think, young people get in rural America. So it actually took me leaving home to come back to my farming roots in this kind of circuitous path. But I found out just how much I loved teaching and farming at the same time through that job. And it was, you know, serendipitous. It could have taken me a lot longer to figure out the intersection of those things. So I, I got excited about that work. And then I wanted to study science. I got a fellowship to come here to the University of Washington and pursue a PhD. And while I was pursuing my PhD, I was like, why don't we have a student farm? So I was agitating pretty heavily for the university to help start a student farm. And we now have here at the University of Washington in the city of Seattle. Nice. I think it's like a almost three acres. It's definitely two acres of land wow. devoted for the practice of urban agriculture. And I have been able to work with many, many people in developing a program to help teach on this land all of the wonderful things that we can learn about food production in urban settings and just inspiring a new generation of people who have a deep connection with the practice of agriculture and the work of feeding oneself and the way that that kind of intersects with sustainability. So that was a huge thing that I was doing while I was earning my PhD. And at some point in the middle of my PhD, my PhD advisor was like, what do you want to do when you graduate? And I was like, oh, I was studying oysters. Okay. <laughs> and I'm just like, you know, I think I really want to become a farmer. <laughs> which felt like being a queer person after the work of coming out and telling my parents that I was queer, it was like, well, gosh, like now I'm going to be having to have this whole other coming out conversation where in, I talked to my mom and dad and be like, Oh, you know, mom and dad actually, by the way, also, I want to be a farmer. And that's why I got this PhD. <laughs> Eli, can I pause you and tell you that my husband and I had a very similar experience when we were in graduate school, we were at Western Washington and we were also working on a farm at the same time, like both. And then we had to discern again, what are you going to do after graduate school? And we were like, oh, the farming is really has our heart. And so, yeah, but I, we kind of felt similarly, like it felt like a big deal to tell people like our advisors, our parents. I even remember telling my students, you know, that I was teaching English 101, like, they were like, what are you going to do after you graduate? And I was like, do you really want to know? And they were like, yeah. I was like, I'm going to be a farmer. And they were like, no, that's so weird. <laughs> mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. So it's unexpected after putting time in academia to make that switch. But you obviously didn't stop teaching because you're still teaching. So how did we go from PhD, farm, and teaching at the UW? Oh, it's just an enormous amount of luck, I would have to say. Like I and intersectionality, right? Luck and privilege and all the ways that things happen that line up that might make my path a little easier in some ways than another person's path. And harder in other ways, right? But you know, at the end of the day, I think there was a lot of a sort of serendipitous things that have come together to help us get where we are. So the first thing is well, my partner and I decided to have a baby, which was okay. a project. And so we had this baby and then it was like, okay, we don't want to move very far away from our family. So we had a rule as I was beginning to search for jobs in science 
that we were going to try to be within driving distance of one of our two families. And so my family being on the East Coast and my partner's family being here in Seattle. And I got a job offer to go work at a place called Chatham University in, in, in Pittsburgh. And I would have been a sort of faculty member in an agroecology program, sort of teaching about farming and agricultural ecosystems. And that was like exactly what I wanted. But, you know, as, as I started to write at that point, I had already moved out to Whidbey and was leasing farmland and I had started my own farm. And as I started to write this letter, like accepting this job, which is the job I had been like planning and working for for so long, I, I felt bad in my stomach. I felt sick. And I was like, I can't write this email. I can't accept this job. And I ended up writing an email saying, I, I can't leave my farm. And that's actually how I felt. And I think writing that email is like one of the most important sort of writing, you know, how sometimes writing can help you understand how you feel. Mm -hmm. So I like, just like wrote this other letter that was like, I can't accept this job. I want to stay here and pursue this farm. And then at the same time, this job opening here at UW where I had finished my PhD came available. So I was working part-time here as a lecturer at the university and part-time working on Whidbey Island, starting this farm. And at that point we were leasing land and we were starting the farm with a UW faculty member who was thinking about building an intentional community on the 20 acre farm. And we worked together on that. Eventually the intentional community didn't work out, but the farm did. And so I started the farm with another person whose name is uh, Joanne Pontrello, who now runs a seed company, actually, over in Port Townsend, Saltwater Seeds. Okay. Um, and so Joanne moved on, and another person came to help me work on the farm, and her name was Arwen Norman. And we worked together running Skyroot for like eight seasons and maybe nine seasons. And we, during that time, negotiated with Karen, my life partner, and I, negotiated with Karen and we were able to buy the farm. And so we ended up moving from having leased that land to then owning it and then pursuing a business relationship with another person to kind of run the farm and grow the farm. This past year, Arwen moved on. And so we're no longer farming together. And I'm currently running the farm with a young man who came to us as an intern to learn about farming and just hasn't left. He's, he's kind of been with us for about four years now. So oh, great. We're currently running the farm together, which has been just an absolute joy. Yeah. Yeah. I love farms that are run by kind of a community team. It seems like the way to do it if you have the right people around. Right. And finding the right people is always the challenge. Last year, so we at Skyroot, one of the things that we do that I'm really proud of, maybe I mean, you didn't ask this question, but if you asked me <laughs> what I was most proud of about our farm, like one of the things I'm most proud of is over the years, we've been working with the Washington State Internship Program, and we host two or three farm interns a year, and we focus a lot on education on the farm. And we're able to work with one or two people really intensively and just develop a curriculum around what they want to learn about farming and really support them in their own growth. And that's been just such a rich experience for us as a family and for the folks that I run the farm with to have these young people who are really curious about what we're doing and what's working. And so our farm internship program is, has been just, I think, one of the wonderful things that we do on the side of farming. But uh, that's how Max came to us was like, 
through that program and learning about farming. And then he just didn't want to go. So we figured out how to help him stay. <laughs> oh, that seems like such a natural extension of your teaching experience too, to turn the farm into a place where people can learn as well as work. Yeah. And it's actually been great. We've had some of the interns who have come to our farm were our graduates from UW. So they might get their start learning about farming here at the university farm and then move out to Whidbey and do some sort of peri-urban agricultural practice on the fringes of the city. Mm-hmm. Yeah, let's talk a little bit about Whidbey because our audience might not really know what Whidbey Island is. Even some people who live in the Northwest don't really know about Whidbey. So it's kind of a rare place. Can you explain a little bit about it to people who aren't familiar? Yeah. So Whidbey Island is located, I think, about 20, 25 miles north of the city of Seattle. And it's a ferry ride from the mainland. You can drive a long distance north and then drive south and and come onto the island via a bridge. But that takes, I don't know, an hour, an hour and a half of driving. Otherwise, you can just drive about 20 minutes or half an hour north and take a ferry across um, the Puget Sound to Whidbey Island. And Whidbey Island is a kind of long, narrow island. And it has land that was traditionally stewarded by the Snohomish people. And mostly what we understand about the native use of the island was that it was a place where people would come and now do work with with food but there weren't like there wasn't like a big village on the island Mm -hmm. but it was an important site of uh, food production and useful for a lot of you know fishing uh, as well as hunting but the island is kind of divided into maybe three parts there's the south end of the island near the ferry where a lot of people who commute live so a lot of people who work at Boeing or people who work in, in the city of Seattle live on the south end and hop on a ferry and come into the city. But then the middle of the island is a is a big prairie with really deep prairie soils, which are amazing. And actually, Steve Jones, who's a wheat breeder here in the Northwest, was telling me that sometime in the early 1900s, the world record for wheat production was set on Whidbey oh, Island. Oh, wow. Um, in our prairie. So it's a beautiful ecosystem there. And there's some fabulous farms in the middle of the island. We're doing something we've never done before. If you've been listening to the Growing for Market podcast and haven't yet checked out Growing for Market magazine, we've made a change so you can try the magazine for free. We've added a free month to the beginning of all first-time subscriptions. Try out the digital or paper magazine subscription for a month, and if it's not for you, cancel within 28 days and you'll never get billed. Even the most basic subscription gets you a year of the magazine plus 150 back issues from the last 15 years, or get an additional 1,600 articles from the magazine in our searchable archive with a full access subscription. Also, the 28 free days come in addition to your year's subscription, so it's really like getting 13 months of Growing for Market for the price of 12. Who doesn't love a 13 for the price of 12 deal? With digital subscriptions starting at just $30 per year, head on over to growingformarket.com and subscribe today to benefit from over three decades of writing by farmers for farmers in Growing for Market magazine. And then in the north of the island, there's a military base, several kind of military bases there. So there's a a much bigger sort of aggregation of people live on the north end of the island. 
So our farm is located on the south end of the island, and we are about seven miles from the ferry landing. So it's a pretty, a pretty short jaunt from our farm to the ferry. The thing that's always really strikes me about going there, because I I've had a lot of time on Whidbey, is it's very rural feeling. Yeah. Right. You're mm-hmm. so close to the city, and yet, unlike some bedroom communities that might feel suburban, Whidbey really feels like a rural place in a lot of the way the landscape looks and kind of the just the activities that happen on the island. So, and yet you're very close to the city. No, I think that's certainly true. I think we we have a, a kind of a rural character, especially on the south end and in the middle of the island. It's kind of more rural. And as you head toward the north and you get a higher population density, it's it's a little bit more urban, but it's still it still has a very rural feel to it. And that was something that attracted me to the island in the first place. My partner told me when I was so clear about what I wanted to do is to start a farm my partner said, geez, Eli, like, yeah, you can become a farmer, but you can't quit your day job. <laughs> and so the rule was we were trying to find a farm where we could practice farming and practice agriculture, but still be near enough to the university that I could continue to do the work of teaching that I love. So that's how we ended up on Whitby. Yeah, you would have had pretty limited options there <laughs> in terms of a place you could farm where you could also commute to UW reasonably. So tell us more about your farm. I know that you grow no-till vegetables and you have a CSA. Tell us a little bit about how you grow, how you market, what you're up to these days. Yeah, terrific. So like I said, we've been sort of in a bit of a transition with our farm this year. So after eight or nine seasons of working with someone, you develop patterns and ideas about how your farm works. And now I'm doing that with a new person. And so we, in order to do that well, we decided this year to scale the farm back a little bit from where we had been growing at our sort of where we were is about three acres of vegetables pretty intensively in production. And this year, I think it's closer to like an acre and a half. But what's amazing is that we have cut back like the area that we're planting, but we've hardly cut back the revenue that's coming in at all. It's so interesting to see how that flip has happened because we're just doing a way better job managing weeds. We're managing planting timings. We're pulling one bed out of production and the very same day putting it in production of something else. And so we're timing things a lot better. And like one of the other amazing things that we're doing is we quit going, well, we quit mostly going to market. So we're selling most of our food directly through an online ordering system, which is this like amazing thing that Arwen built. It's a sort of complicated series of spreadsheets, but we're not like using one of those services where you have to pay a lot of money for them. It's just a Google form and people tell us exactly what they want. And we track people, people deposit money into an account that we then track the money from. And we pack boxes individually for each of our consumers. So that's probably 50% of our sales. And 40% of our sales is a CSA that we deliver into the city of Seattle, as well as on the island. And then probably 10% of the sales, we are sending some vegetables to market to sell with another farmer who's, who's doing the work of standing behind the table for us, because I don't, I don't want to do that on Saturdays anymore. So that's kind of our sales outlet. And it's been a wonderful outlet for us. And I think that 
the practice of not tilling and the way that we're combining that with our weed management strategy and flipping beds has just been, it's been an amazing success for our farm. Like the more we practice not tilling, the less weeds we have and the more time we get to spend doing the things we like doing, which are planting and harvesting. And so we're trying to dial in the systems of the farm so that that we're maximizing the time that we're spending farming, doing the tasks that we most want to do as farmers. And, you know, it's not that I mind weeding, like it's fine, but like, honestly, I don't want to spend my time weeding. Like I could weed and weed and weed and the weeds will never end. And so as we've shifted to a no-till system, the weeds are stopping. And that's honestly, it's phenomenal. It's a big feels like a revolution to me on the farm. Yeah, that sounds wonderful. My husband and I have always said that weeding is the one of maybe several activities on a farm that doesn't directly make you money. You have to do it to have plants that will grow to size and not be outcompeted, but it itself doesn't bring an income the way like if you sow a new flat of lettuce, you know, you know, that's a hundred heads of lettuce I'm going to sell or harvesting those heads, you know, those directly relate to income. So certainly anything we can do to reduce the time we spend weeding and still have healthy plants seems awesome in my book. Yeah. And there's a lot of different approaches to no-till. How are you all approaching it at Skyroot? Like, what does that mean in practice? Great. That is such an important question and I'm so glad you asked it. So, yeah, when we're approaching no-till, we're really inspired by the work of building compost and using compost as the source of our fertility for the most part on our farm. So we, I mean, we're still like using up the fertilizer that we bought for last season. Like we use so little fertilizer relative to how we were growing before when we were tilling. And what sort of fertilizer was that what that you were bringing in for amending? Yeah. So our fertilizers mostly just, we mix it up ourselves. It's a mix of like bone meal and a little blood meal and some agricultural lime and kelp meal. So yeah. But since we've started not tilling, we are bringing in compost. We use compost from, there's a really large organization of sort of a municipal services organization here that gathers or waste food from the city and compost it. And it's called Cedar Grove Composting. And they compost all the organic waste for the city of Seattle. And we buy Cedar Grove Compost certified organic for our farm. But one of the things we're really interested in is thinking about full systems and recycling nutrient loops. And we're trying to get to a place where on the farm, we're actually building our own compost. And that's been such a joy. And so we have a couple of neighbors who have horses and we park a trailer, like a tow behind your truck, kind of pickup truck trailer. And they fill the trailer for us and when they mock their stalls and then they text us when the trailer's full and we go pick it up and so we're growing a lot of compost now. We're probably not quite, we're probably half the compost that we need to run the farm. We're now producing on the farm when the combination of our goat manure, our neighbor's horse manure, vegetable scraps, and 
we have a, a lawnmower. I bought this like great lawnmower that we use to mow the paths and it collects all the grass. And so that is another huge addition. So we have a growing orchard. I think pretty soon we'll have three acres in orchard. So mowing in the pathways of the orchard and mowing around the farm field, we gather all that grass and use it in our compost system. And it's just been amazing. The compost that we've been able to produce has just, it's been phenomenal. And like, it's so exciting to have the farm building its own compost and using that compost to augment the fertility of our planting systems. So that's like the main approach that we're using to run the fertility of the farm in the no-till system. In order to make it work for us, we, we try to stay on top of weeds in the planting sections. And then in other sections, we're using a combination of silage tarp to kill cover crop and then cover cropping. So we're like right now we have a third of the farm in, in summer cover crop, a third of the farm that's not planted is in summer cover crop. And then some of it's still tarped and composting winter cover crop. And then we'll pull those tarps and plant a fall cover crop in those beds. And so we're, we're doing a lot of cover cropping as well throughout the season to build fertility in the part of the farm that we're currently not planting in. And then next year we'll probably flip. So the beds that are being intensively used this season will be rested and cover cropped and we'll be utilizing the beds we're not using right now next season. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. And are you, do you have permanent bed systems or are you building the beds each year? Well, it's kind of a compromise. Like I don't like measuring beds with okay. tape measures. Like I like doing that once. I, I don't want to do that every time. So we kind of set corners with the tractor and we have a pretty permanent bed system. It stays, it, they stay pretty well, but every now and then it gets off, you know how that happens. And so then we'll reset, but we usually from the corner marker, we're able to reset our beds simply by driving the tractor over. So our beds are 36 inches wide with a one foot space in between. And so, and that's how our tractor set up. And the reason we have our bed system set that way is so that if we want to drive the tractor down to mow a bed, we can do that. Okay. We haven't, this season, I don't think we've run the tractor to mow a bed ever because we're just doing a really good job flipping beds over and staying on top of weeds. So we haven't really had to do that. So what do you do for bed prep then to make them ready for transplanting? Do you use a tilther or some kind of light tillage to make them ready? Yeah. So in the beginning of the season, especially in the beginning, if it's been under a tarp, we usually will broad fork a bed. And if a bed is getting any kind of a root crop, we'll always just broad fork it for Eli's peace of mind. But we find that now we've been not tilling for almost four years and our beds are kind of, they kind of have a lot of loft already. So mostly we don't have to broad fork, but sometimes we broad fork. We almost always will lay down a new layer of compost because we're using the compost as much for fertility as we are using it to just work as a, like a mulch that's keeping the weeds down. And it's just so great. So we'll just, I would rather use extra compost and get more organic matter in our farm, you know, and that seems to be working really well for us. So, so then we'll, then we'll mark beds and transplant right into that compost. And do you have a method for spreading the compost that works well? I know you're only, you're saying it's an acre and a half this year, so not terribly big, but that still can be a lot to move. 
Yeah. We line up three wheelbarrows. We have a tractor. So we dump, we'll pick up a load with a front loader of the tractor and dump it. Three wheelbarrows lined up in front of our tractors receives uh, basically one full tractor bucket of compost. And then we just move it with wheelbarrows. And, you know, it, it sounds arduous, but we're not, since we're not loading the wheelbarrows, it's actually pretty, it's pretty straightforward and pretty fast to prep the beds that way. Yeah, it is the shoveling into the wheelbarrows that can be arduous in my experience, not so much the moving them and dumping them. So, yeah. And I think about that, like in terms of the future of the farm, like what if we were really a fossil fuel free farm? Like, how would we do this then? And that's a great question. I don't actually know. I think we would have to be doing an even better job with cover crop management because moving the volume of compost that we're moving is, it would be hard to do that. Mm -hmm. We've done this thought process a lot on our farm. I, we used to call it, what would we do if fuel gets to $20 a gallon? But it's getting a lot closer than that than I would have thought. <laughs> and also it's just thinking about the implications of fossil fuel usage for the environment, climate change, et cetera, et cetera. I always come back to the hope that in the future we can get like 95% of our current use of fossil fuel out of systems, right? And then retain all those fossil fuel run things or convert them to electric, but still, you know, the basic concept of machinery and like save it for when we really need it, right? That 5%, that's like, in my mind, the perfect system. It kind of sounds like what you're talking about on your farm. Mm -hmm. You've dialed in like, where is tractor power actually really useful? And so loading those wheelbarrows sounds like a great saver for the back, for sure. And time. Yeah, for sure. And I think there's a lot to speak towards in terms of using cover crops even more effectively than we are now. And one of the things that would be really great for our farm would be if we had a mower that, because uh, like right now we just have like this kind of a brush hog kind of mower on our tractor, but having a flail mower that could like really chop up a cover crop more finely and help us it would increase the pace of turnover of the cover crop and how quickly it would break down and how fast we could replant, like how much more carbon we could be capturing on our beds through photosynthesis. So there's some steps, I think, if we wanted to get away from compost as a management system, there are some tools, I think, that we could utilize to get there. I will say that we love our flail mower for cover crop integration. <laughs> it's a future purchase. We made the switch. Yeah, they're not cheap, especially compared to a rotary cutter, which is like so cheap. Mm -hmm. But yeah, we made the switch a few years into farming and it really does make a big difference in the turnaround on a cover crop field. So you're also certified organic. How does that play into any of what you're doing? You probably are having to monitor your compost for temperature and things and days and stuff. Do you have any great systems you guys have? set up for, I don't know, navigating certification. It, it can be complicated to keep track, especially on a small farm with a lot of moving parts. Yeah, that is so true. <laughs> I sometimes feel like the certification process for a, for a farm, the scale of ours is like a pretty arduous thing to keep track of all the things that we're keeping track of. And the it, it actually feels to me because of the diversity of things that we're doing, like tracking all this stuff is like, actually, it's a job all by itself. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, big farms do have a person, usually, that that is their job. Mm -hmm. Yeah, totally. Uh, so a few years ago, I was thinking about, you know, should we be certified or 
do we need to certify? And basically what it came down to for us in terms of making the decision to certify was, well, we can't really be knocking a system unless we've really, unless we really participate in it and are understanding it to the fullest of our capacity. And one of the things that was like a big hesitancy for me in wanting to join the certification was, you know, can we still use our warm compost? Can we do our composting? Can we, all these different things. And like, the more I looked into it, instead of in people saying, no, you can't do that. It was like the organic certifiers that I was talking to were like, oh yeah, like we can work with you to figure out a system that will work for your farm. And like at the end of the day, a farm like ours practicing regenerative agriculture, focusing on systems management, we're essentially a poster child for the values of this organic system, even if we're not maybe a poster child for like the records that we're keeping. Does that make sense? And so I feel like generally we do keep our records. So like for the compost pile, we have just out, we have uh, received a grant. This was so great and important. We received a grant from the county. I actually think it might've come through the state legislature for shellfish, the protection of shellfish beds, but it was basically a grant to help us construct a compost facility that had a roof on it. Right. Because you can't just have your compost out in the rain, right? Right. Not here. Not where, I mean, we don't quite get a meter of rain, but like it's a lot of rain. We get a lot of rain. And so we getting the quantity of rain that we do, especially in the winter where there are storms, tarps are definitely going to blow off, you know, so keeping the compost covered is a really important way of protecting the waterways, right? We live on an island. Um, Mm -hmm. Our watershed is like, you can see the ocean from our farm. It's not a mile away from the ocean. So that's really important. And so this compost facility, we built it three times bigger than they thought we needed it, but it's just the right size for the level of compost we're trying to construct and build. And we have to Yes, we have to aggregate or bring in manure from other places, but that's also beneficial to the island too, right? Like I'm collecting manure that would otherwise be getting rained on all mm-hmm. winter. So that's really cool. Do you have a concrete pad as part of this structure yeah. too? Okay. So that's great. Um, so you're really not losing mm-mm. anything. Okay. No, and that's especially great for being able to maintain nitrogen in our system through the compost. So that is... Great. And because it's on the slab and we have that, it also makes it much easier to have these systems of temperature. And, you know, we have, you know, bay one, bay two, bay three, and we have a system for how we rotate things through and we track the temperature with the pile and the little clipboard just moves with the pile. So it's a nice straightforward system that everyone can see. And that's like managing people on the farm. Like somebody asked me, like, what's the hardest part about farming? It was like they expected it to be some sort of physical answer. But I would say hardest part about farming, hands down, is people. Like just helping create systems to help people do the good work. And like one thing that we found is the more we keep our systems out in the front of us, like written down on paper, hanging up on clipboards, whatever it is, the better able people are to help us make those systems work. Yeah, as much as you can make it easy. And then as far as marketing the produce, you already described a little bit about your different marketing venues. And you have, two again, these two really different places you're selling. You have this kind of 
ex-urban slash rural place on Whidbey and then Seattle proper. Do you do much marketing in either of those places or do you have mostly word of mouth business and do you tailor anything different for the two populations or do they even feel different or does it mostly just feel like different addresses, same customer base? Yeah, that's a great question. For us right now, the scale of the farm and having especially gone from a farm that was like two and a half to almost three acres to a farm that is now an acre and a half, every single thing that we're growing, we're selling. I had to like pull cucumbers out of the harvest tote so that I could make cucumber salad <laughs> last night. Like nor that's not a problem we had last year. So last year I would say our marketing approach was a little different, but this year, yeah, it's entirely word of mouth. We send out an announcement and say, Hey, we're going to run the CSA this is the number of boxes we're going to send into the city. This is the number of boxes we want to have on the island. And our CSA is full and we haven't really had to beat the bushes to get that to happen. I think the quality of produce that we're growing is pretty phenomenal. And I work here at the university with a geologist whose name is David Montgomery and he's written a lot of books about the no-till farming and about soil. Oh, interesting. And I... I actually get to teach with him, which is phenomenal. So we teach the Introduction to Environmental Studies class together, which is like such a joy because he's like a hero of mine, right? And like getting to like co-teach this large class with him, it's been super fun. But he just wrote a book called What Your Food Ate. And in that book, he describes how much more nutritious in a micronutrients and how rich, how much richer in micronutrients food coming from no-till systems is. And, you know, we can really see that like, as we're growing on our farm in these systems, like our produce, like it tastes great. And like, you can feel in your hands, you pick up the soil and you can see white threads of mycelium connecting to the roots of our crops. Because when we're flipping beds, we're not disturbing that network of the fungal community we're simply planting back into it. And the fungus is simply changing its allegiance from the head of lettuce to the thing of fennel that we put in. And we're just constantly feeding this big network of fungal and bacterial community life that's in our soil. But that is having a consequence that comes out in the flavor and the taste and ultimately the nutrition of the crops that we're growing. So I think people that buy our vegetables like we just actually this week we like asked people for some feedback and we've just been like super pleased with the feedback people are giving us about the quality and taste of the vegetables and how do you do the distribution in the two different places are you packing boxes and dropping them in somebody's carport how do you do it yeah so thank you we we pack you know just you know it's just like that thing you know we just pack the boxes we drop between 10 and 15 boxes at a drop site, usually somebody's front porch. So I was close with the carport, but yeah, it, yeah, exactly. it's Seattle, so probably a porch. <laughs> but then in the city, that's in the city on the island. The majority of customers come right to the farm to pick up, and then we do deliver to like a couple of pretty local communities. But we're mostly delivering because, like, well, like there's people who are a little bit older getting our vegetables, and they don't want to make the trip out to the farm. Yeah, sounds great. Okay, I want to hear more about this balancing an academic career with a farming career. How does that work? I mean, I guess you probably have less teaching work in the summer. So, how? yeah, tell me. Yeah, I mean, I would say finding a balance between being a farmer and being a professor is a 
been a deep personal journey for me and not easy. I love farming and there's something about farming that helps me just feel good in my body. Yeah. I like my body. And what's cool about that is like here in the university, it's like your body is like irrelevant. Like it's like what matters at the university is the work you do with your mind. And that matters so much so that here sometimes at the university, if you say like, oh, I'm a farmer or whatever it is, there's like a, why are you wasting your time with that pursuit? You know? And it's like, oh gosh. And I've had students tell me that faculty have said things to them. Like why don't waste your beautiful mind pursuing this career with your physical body. But to me, farming is this like way in which I get to use my physical body and my brain to the fullest of its capacity. Like it's this creative pursuit. It requires a lot of knowledge and a real capacity to focus on all of those things are the same kinds of skills that I use at the university as well in a different way. But I get to bring my body with me to the farm in a special, and it it feels pretty great. And so I, I don't want to have a life in which I'm not farming. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But I also really value the work that I'm getting to do as a as a professor, especially thinking about sustainability, I think that there's a, a wonderful writer, his name is David Orr, and I think he's a faculty at Oberlin College in, in Ohio, and he wrote a book called The Earth and Mind. And in that book, he asked the question, like, how responsible are institutions of higher learning for the destruction that the earth has experienced, right? is who's done that destruction, who has led that destruction. And predominantly it's leaders who were educated at tier one research universities like mine, right? Who have led the pathway of destruction. And I think that there's a lot we can be doing that's so much better for our planet and for the human community who live on our planet. And one of the things that I love is being able to talk about this and inspire students to be thinking differently about how they define success for themselves, right? And not letting, you know, the world be the arbiter and definer of success, but letting one's own heart look into what success looks and feels like uh, for each individual. So it's a real joy to have this job at the university where I get to teach about sustainability. I get to teach about how sustainability is related to food. And I get to even practice agriculture with students here in the city. And so- Are you still involved at the farm you helped start or? Yeah, right now it's summertime, but I'm teaching a course called the Urban Farm on the student farm and helping run the farm practicum, which is a sort of next level learning for students that want to learn more skills related to urban food production and running a business. And so I feel really glad about that and happy to have that ability. You know, and I, I, I move off to the side and you can see one of the ways that I can do that is because summertime ferry lines are awful, but I got a motorcycle so I can jump to the head of the line and get back to the farm pretty fast. Yeah. Nice. Yeah, I know that would be Ferry lines can be very long. Yeah, especially in the summertime. It's a place, it's a beautiful place where people want to come and spend some time on vacation. So Yeah, definitely. So what is the urban farm? I'm I'm still wrapping my head around the idea that there's two to three acres in Seattle proper where real estate is so valuable being dedicated to 
a teaching farm at UW. So I know <laughs> it's amazing. I know it's literally <laughs> the coolest thing, Katie. Like I, I mean, the UW farm is like it's the best. What like what does it look like? What are you guys doing there? Is it just a farm that happens to be in the city, or mm. do you do things yeah. a little differently because of the location? Yeah. So the UW farm here on campus has actually three different locations. And so one of them is just across the street here. It's basically raised gardens at the base of one of our residence halls. And it's an acre of space fit between buildings and it's on, you know, three different levels. So like when you want to, you know, move compost, you have to like move wheelbarrows up and down stairs. Wow. Um, so it's it's hard and it's cool because you've got these different levels. So it's really neat for the students to think about terrace gardening and the consequences of buildings and shade on how plants grow and the impact of wind and all this stuff. But it's an incredible invitation, right? Because like there's like thousands of students like literally in the backyard of this part of the farm. And then off on the farthest side of campus, there's a place called the Center for Urban Horticulture. And there's a more, like more of a spacious, like more expansive feeling of a farm. And that's about an acre and a half. And then there's a third site that's on the rooftop of what's one of the residence halls. Wow. So you really have sort of the three different possibilities for what Mm -hmm. an urban farm might look like using native soil versus like being on a roof versus being in built up spots. That's so cool. They get to see those three different manifestations of what's possible. Right. And in an urban environment, one of the things that's so exciting is like all the different microclimates that you might have on a farm. And like the students like really get to see a whole diversity of that. It's pretty amazing. And it's really empowering, right? It's a place where students can just go and be and learn about this stuff in their backyard. So that's pretty great too. So is that... Working on the urban farms on the campus, is that something that is for environmental studies students or can any student who's interested take those courses and get involved? Yeah, that's a great question. The course is taught through the environmental studies program, the urban farm course. And there's been such interest in the course. Like when I first started, it was like 25 students and recently it's 75 students. And now for the first time, we're offering the class in the fall and the spring, and we're even developing a next, a higher level class. So it, so one class could scaffold on to the next. But having being able to offer it more times means more seats for students in programs beyond our own, which is great. There's also happening in sort of alongside the environmental studies program, UW is developing a food systems, nutrition, and health program. It's a major on campus now. So it's not about agriculture, it's about food systems, but obviously a class like the urban farm fits well into the uh, curricular focus of that program as well. So we have primarily students from environmental studies and food systems taking the class, but, you know, there's always like, you know, engineers and, you know, students from forestry and English who happen to find the class. What are some of the other kinds of courses you teach and how much do you bring your farmer self into them? Is that something that you generally talk about with your students? Do you use examples from the farm as you teach? Yeah, I mean, I think the teaching, my practice of agriculture grounds most of my teaching and comes with me into the classroom, you know, whether it's that I didn't wash my hands very well and I still have dirt on our fingernails or that I'm bringing it in through example and 
the questions that I ask or the ideas that we're talking about. I mean, a lot of what I'm talking about when I think about sustainability is thinking about regenerative practice as it extends beyond the systems of a farm and the work of grazing animals and integrating chickens, but beginning to think more broadly about regenerating the human systems that help us feel healthy and fulfilled, right? And we're in the middle of a pretty serious mental health crisis in America, and my students are feeling that. And bringing the farm into what I'm talking about is pretty essential, I think, because it's it is a pretty healing practice and something that I think is a tangible way to practice these regenerative acts of rebuilding uh, connection between people and place. Yeah, definitely. And I'm curious how much of what you've learned through your scholarship, academic studies, how is that informing the farm? Oh yeah. Like so much. I mean, it's such a great thing. Cause like, I mean, like also like I can read about stuff for the farm and then incorporate it into class or I can read about stuff for class and bring it out in the farm. And so it's, it's been a rich kind of space of kind of reciprocity. And I think, you know, pretty much like every time I teach classes that have to do with food and farming, like I invite students to come out and spend the night on the farm. And that's a really wonderful experience, you know, being able to spend a night with students like at a place like UW, it isn't that frequent that faculty spend nights with their students. Like, that's cool. And But at my small liberal arts college, like, I hung out with my faculty all the time. But I think at a big university like this, that's not as frequent. And so it's really special. And one of the things that's so special about that is not introducing them to the farm, but introducing them to the work of collaborative food preparation. So working together in teams of people to feed each other from the food that we harvest from the farm is probably the most meaningful activity that we do in the field trip. And it actually doesn't have anything to do with the practice of growing the food. It's just just the food is there. Let's go harvest it and let's work together to make a meal. That's a really special, special thing to be able to share with students. Yeah. I mean, I did not grow up in a farming background in the first few times I got invited out to a farm for a meal. That is a magical experience. One that farmers get to have really all the time, but it's profound. It's a really different way of being in the world and feeding ourselves and each other. So that's really cool that you get to share that with people going to a very urban school, a big school too about like reciprocity, like the gift that students give a farmer of like, wow, what you're doing is really special. is great. Like how, just the, how long in the drudgery, like 120 radish bunches in, it's really wonderful to have someone say, wow, this is so incredible. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> I know. I, I remember my husband and I, before we ever worked on a farm, we spent a week staying with friends who had a very extensive homestead and they sold a little bit on the side in central Washington. And the hospitality they offered us that week was over the top, just in terms of the food they shared. And I, and we helped them in their garden, right? So we were there to help. I remember leaving and thinking, there's no way I can ever repay this gift. And then like you're saying, 10 years later, we have our own farm and people come to visit us. And I realize we did give them that gift of mirroring, you know, the amazing beauty of their experience back into like probably kind of an exhausting spring. It is truly valuable to farmers to have people come out and 
have that fresh feeling of awe, you yeah. know, cause we can get tired. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> I mean, honestly, most days I just still feel very grateful, but it's fun. It's so fun to share and to see that. So as you probably read widely on topics in environmental studies, you already mentioned two books that were inspiring to you or that you found interesting. I'm curious if you have any other titles that maybe a farmer might not run across otherwise that you think would be really valuable. I didn't prep you for this question. Sorry. Surprise. <laughs> I know that's great. I, I have, so I just can't say enough about this book. Uh, and would really encourage. And you have it right it. here, folks. You right can't here. see Eli, but yeah, he has I'm it right it here. Here it is. Okay. It's called Healing Grounds, and it's by Liz Carlisle. And oh my gosh, it turns out Liz Carlisle is probably a phenomenal human being. I mean, I don't know her like personally, but when I start, so I had a group of students who were like, "We want to read a book, Eli." So we had we held like this nighttime book club like last winter quarter, winter quarter, it's like dark and there was no credit. And the students showed up like, and this is looking at the list right now. It was like 30 students what? and they, they all signed up. I, I contacted the publisher. They sent me copies of the book, like at a reduced rate. So I got 30 copies and then the students were all like Venmoing me money for this book. It was like totally off. You know, it wasn't part of UW. It was like, it was here, but it wasn't like a class. Uh-huh. But we read the book every day. Every Monday we gathered and read a different chapter. And I was joined in helping organize this by a wonderful graduate student who is going to TA for us actually next quarter, which is great. Anyway, so I reached out to Liz Carlisle, the author of this book, and she joined us and she came up just like and zoomed into class and, and answered questions from the students. But this book is phenomenal because it basically is looking at regenerative practices in agriculture from a much more ancestral lens and really really honoring the indigenous roots of the practice of regenerative work and reframing this as like, well, like this is a much bigger, much broader approach to a life way, a pathway for being. And I really appreciate her invitation there and what a wonderful job that she has done of really uplifting indigenous voices. And when she speaks in public about her book, it is almost always with indigenous partners and place. And that feels like a really restorative and wonderful act. And so I really love this book. I think it's great. And I really like the practice of it as well. So, What's the subtitle of it? You held it up pretty fast. Healing Grounds. And then there's a subtitle. That. That's okay. I just want to make sure we find the right book and we'll put it in the show notes, everybody. A link to sure. the book. Liz Carlisle also wrote The Lentil Underground, which is another great farming book. Also with a great name. Yeah. But the subtext of this title is Healing Grounds, Climate, Justice, and the Deep Roots of Regenerative Farming. Awesome. Okay. We'll make sure these three titles you mentioned are in the show notes for people who want to do some winter reading. Sure. One more book. Just oh yeah. Let's do I'm it. I'm, I'm all about it. I want. It's this tiny little book. It's by a guy named Paul Fleischman. <gasps> it's not a famous book. Do I've you know seen, it? I've seen it. I haven't read it, but I've seen it around. Yeah. Very little. Yeah. It's, it's for young readers, right? It's for young readers, but it's a, such a great book on sort of what I Sorry, think. we're talking about it and people don't know the title yet. <laughs> Can yeah, you tell us? Because so I just saw the picture. Tell us. Tell the us, The title Eli. of this book is Seed Folks. And it's a 
really wonderful look. It is written for a young reader audience, but I actually have my university students read it sometimes when I'm feeling excited about different things. But it's a great look at one plot of land from many people's perspective. And I think that it's a very inspiring book, especially for urban food growers. And one of the things that can be hard in an urban environment growing food is, you know, like you have unusual vandals, right? Like your pumpkins can just disappear because it's near Halloween, right? Like, yeah. Or I remember on the student farm, we grew peas and like somebody came and like picked all of our peas and it was like, but actually, wait a minute, like, let's just step back. Like we're growing food that's so phenomenal in the city that people are stealing it. Like, that's so great. Not only are people eating their vegetables, they're like so inspired to eat their vegetables that they're going to steal them. <laughs> and I, I mean, I wonder if in some cases they don't even realize that they're not just available. Right. 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 You know, people who work. maybe haven't grown up around gardening might not understand that there's boundaries assumed in a garden that right. if and it's growing here measure... and you didn't grow it, then it's not necessarily yeah. yours to pick. Right. Mm -hmm. Right. And how do you measure the value of urban food production? Do you measure it in pounds of produce or do you measure it in transformative moments? And so one of the things I think is really important is to think about measuring success in these in these spaces of transformative moments. And I think this book, Seed Folks, really kind of speaks to that way in which urban farming, urban food production can be its own source of transformation that isn't necessarily about the quantity of food produced, but about the relationships that emerge through that. That sounds great. And also the fact that it's a little slim book written for young readers means I bet every farmer listening could probably fit it into their winter by the fire reading schedule, put it right with your seed catalogs, <laughs> right? Yeah. And flip through one seed catalog, read a chapter of Seed Folks, flip through another seed catalog, and you'll have read an inspiring book over the winter. I want to circle back to Skyroot Farm before we get too close to the end of this. And our podcast audience, as you know, is mostly direct market farmers or people who want to be doing that. And I'm curious... If there's any one decision that you all have made that you feel like has been just really profound or the best for the farm and how has it made a difference for the farm or for you or for the people working there? Yeah, that's a wonderful question. I wonder how I would answer that, you know, in different years of the farm. Right? <laughs> it probably changes based on what you're dealing with each year, huh? Mm -hmm. But I, I think that probably I would have to say that the decision that I think is has been probably most valuable to us is kind of this decision that we pretty constantly make. When we first started farming, this was really important to Arwen that we have a farm workday that starts at eight and ends at five. Mm -hmm. And that seems like a silly, simple thing. It ought to be a simple thing, but running a farm, that's actually pretty hard. And figuring out what enough is or when you can say, I'm going to stop now or trying to operate within these limits of a, of a reasonable workday. That's a big practice. It continues, you know, it's not something that comes easily. And some days we don't, we don't accomplish that. And there's plenty of nights where I'm still on the computer balancing the books or doing something like that, sending out emails to the CSA. But we really try to prioritize our work to fit in these hours of eight to five. And 
when you're asking me about how I balance like this complex little farmer life professor, you know, a lot of my professor work happens at night, but a lot of my farm work happens, you know, it's very clear when Eli's on the farm and when Eli's not on the farm, Eli's not on the farm. And both Max and I have off farm jobs. And so it's very clear, like when we're, when we're on the farm, who is managing the crew, who's not managing what's happening, how we transfer information. And all of that is trying to happen within these hours, right? Eight to five. We're trying really hard to honor that. And I would say that decision to try to set a working period for the day and to really stay with that has been the single biggest important thing that we've done for trying to make a farm that stays a farm that I keep wanting to get up in the morning and work on, you know, like, and I really have to thank Arwen for that insistence because when we first began, it was like, oh, I can work forever. I don't have an off switch, (laughs) but my hair turned gray and now I have an off switch. Especially when you're young and enthusiastic. Yeah. (laughs) That's great. I mean, I agree. I think reigning in the workday in any occupation, but certainly in farming is a great way to be more sustainable for the humans working on the farm, but also to really prioritize what you, what you really value and what you really want, how you want to be spending your time every day on the farm, because you really have to think, okay, what actually needs to happen today? Put that at the top of the list and, and then do it. Is there anything else you want to share just in general about environmental studies, the farm, your story that you think our audience would find interesting? Yeah. I mean, there's so many interesting things I've thought of as we've been talking. I think one more book that I'll just mention, because I enjoyed it, is a book you'll have to look up the author, because I I don't have it in front of me, but it's called Rest is Resistance. Oh, I read that recently too. Yeah. And it's just a really good, again, thinking about where the limits are, because like as farmers, we're making our living primarily off of photosynthesis. And that's a wonderful process. Billions of years of evolution have been helping hone that to be as efficient as it can be. But our farms, all of our farms, are embedded in, a, in an economy that's running off of fossil fuels, right? That sets what is enough based on what's possible because of fossil fuels and precious metals. And we can't actually compete. At the end of the day, the reason farming is exhausting is because it's this living system that's embedded in an in an economy that doesn't that doesn't honor that sense of boundaries that comes within a living system, and so all of us are trying to compete in an economic system in which all of the deck is stacked against us. That's the book by Tricia Hersey, right? Yes. Okay. Yes. Rest is resistance. A speaking, manifesto. Yeah, she's not speaking about farming. No, but, but it seems relevant to about, me too when I read it. Yeah, about coming back to kind of what's important and identifying that. And I don't know, they, of course, I'm a farmer with an off-farm job, and that's how I'm meeting the value systems in my my farm, which is a credible business, but like also paying the mortgage, which would be hard to do on would be into, on a, for us on the scale farm that we're on. We could do it, but it would be a different challenge. So kind of honoring that and just trying to think into it. It feels important. Yeah. That's something that we end up talking about a lot on this podcast. It seems with people that balance of 
you know, we're a farming magazine and podcast. We're not a gardening magazine. So some, you know, what our ideals are have to always be balanced with paying the bills and sometimes paying people's whole livelihood. And that gets really hard sometimes what you have to do. And, but I do think it's important, especially for people who want to farm over their whole life, not just for their twenties or their thirties to be thinking how to build in to the farm rest for their bodies and for their employees' bodies. And and as you said, that that does end up just in some ways being actually related, but also metaphorically standing into how we think of the resources that are a bigger part of our farm, whether that's the land, even taking care of our equipment, you know, it's all it's all bigger part of that sustainability puzzle, which is pretty complex, it turns out. <laughs> I guess complex enough to teach classes about it and keep studying it and keep practicing it. Right. Right. <sighs> yeah. Well, Katie, it's sure been a pleasure yes. speaking with you. Thank you so much, Eli, for joining us. I'll make sure we get all those books in the show notes so people can make their winter reading list. And if people want to get in touch with you, what's the best way for them to do that? Is it social media via your website and email? Yeah, probably an email is the best way. We're not so great on social media, but it's wheat at skyrootfarm.com. Great. So we'll get that in the show notes too. And you guys do have a website for the farm if people want to check it out and learn a little bit more. We do have social media as well. It's just, I don't really use it that much. So it's uncared for. You know what? <laughs> if you don't have to, to get your CSA full, there's no need. <laughs> All the more time for you guys to actually be farming and teaching and enjoying your families and all of that. Well, someday, Katie, I'm going to write a book. And when I do, maybe I'll have to like tune up my social media capacity. That's what I did. <laughs> yeah, that is the expectation. So, yeah, if you ever want to ask, what does a reluctant farmer put on social media because they're writing a book, you just send me an email and I'll tell you how okay, I, how I navigated it. my ambivalence about social I media. I can't wait. I can't <laughs> wait for that conversation. Katie, it was such a pleasure to get to meet you. And Thank I you. can't wait to read your book someday. So you should do that. Okay. Okay. Thank you so much, Eli. You have a great day. Yeah. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you for joining us for this episode of the Growing for Market podcast. If you've been enjoying the show, please consider giving us a follow and a rating or review. It really helps others find the podcast. For more tips and tricks from farmer to farmer, check out our magazine at growingformarket.com. Whether you're a commercial grower or just want to grow like one, subscribe to Growing for Market magazine for the nitty gritty of growing, marketing, and the business of market farming. If you're not familiar with us, you can request a free print or digital sample from our website, growingformarket.com. <laughs>